Good morning once again. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, if you'd like to turn there, chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 ends the first main section of the Gospel of Matthew, a section that we've entitled The Revelation of the King, made up of four parts, the person of the king, chapters 1 through 4, the principles of the king, chapters 5 through 7, the power of the king, chapters 8 and 9, which we finished last week, and then chapter 10 caps this major section with the people of the king. You know, as we're talking about the people of the king, or the people that God calls and uses for his glory, have you ever thought how wonderful it would be to really be used by God? I mean, new Christians especially, I think, wrestle with this, how, how wonderful it would be. They see others in ministry and, and maybe a pastor or somebody or a missionary, and they think to themselves, how wonderful it would be to be used by God, but they don't think that would ever be possible for them. Why? Well, because they're just an ordinary person and no one's special. You know, one of the greatest hindrances to being used by God is the feeling that, you know, I, I have nothing to give to God. I'm not special. I have no, no talents or, or abilities, really. You know, how could God ever use me? Now, let me just say this. If you've ever thought that, then you're not alone. Because feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness often cause people to feel unusable by God. Now, the great blessing of reading the Scripture is to see all the people that God did choose to serve him and how imperfect they really were. In fact, he delights in taking the weak, the worthless, the broken, and the discarded people of this world to use in doing some of his greatest work. The Bible is full of testimonies how God takes ordinary people and uses them in extraordinary ways. He does this so that he alone gets the glory. Now, I see this very principle at work in the men that Jesus chose to be his apostles. So let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, When he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So first one says he called his 12 disciples to him. The word disciple is the Greek word mathetes, and it literally means a learner, a learner. Back then, Disciples would follow a teacher and follow him wherever he went. They would actually live with him because they wanted to soak in every ounce of, of knowledge they could glean from him in the way he taught and spoke and even how he lived his life. So a disciple was first and foremost a learner. But then Jesus turned these guys into apostles. All right, The word apostle in the Greek is a word that means one who has been sent forth with a commission. So understand, they were first disciples or learners, and now they become apostles, those sent out. You know, the problem with a lot of Christians today is twofold. On the one hand, they're either sitting around learning the word all the time, and that's great, isn't it? 
we, you know, you say we love the Word of God. We want to hear it taught. We want to listen to it on the radio. You know, we want to absorb it. And a lot of Christians spend all their time studying and learning the Word of God. The problem is they never go out and do anything with what they've learned. Of course, the other problem, on the other hand, is that there are those who get saved and want to rush out immediately into the ministry without first taking the necessary time to, to learn what the Word of God is teaching about their new faith and so on. Uh, you know, it's great to want to run for the Lord, but you've got to have a message, right? It reminds me of uh, one of the young guys in David's time. And back then they used to dispatch runners with messages, right? Uh, and, and this one guy, you know, David sent this one guy out to deliver a message, an important message to somebody he wanted to communicate with. And so the guy starts running. Well, this other young guy who I guess liked to run, uh, you know, he says, I want to run. So he takes off and he beats the guy to the person David wants to give the message to. And so when this other person, the king or whatever it was, said, OK, what's the message? Uh, I don't have one. Hey, look, it's great to want to run for the Lord, but you got to have a message, okay, once you get there. So, you know, it's good to want to serve God, but you got to be a learner first. got to sit and take the time to study the Word of God. So these men first sat at Jesus' feet learning from Him before being sent out by Him to serve. Now, who were the men that Jesus chose to be His apostles, to serve Him? They're being listed here in pairs because Jesus sent them out two by two. And so that's why they are listed here in pairs. The first pair that we see is Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Simon means shifting sand. But the Lord changed his name to Petros, which means rock. Okay, rock. Peter was the unofficial leader of this group. In fact, Peter was a natural born leader. He was the kind of guy that people just followed, okay? And Peter was the unofficial uh, group leader of the disciples, and yet he was initially unstable, right, and impulsive. You see Peter early on, and he's, uh, he's a leader, but he's very impulsive, very unstable, right? But an interesting thing happened the longer he spent time with Jesus, and of course after Pentecost and was filled with the Spirit, Peter went from this kind of a shifting, unstable person to a rock, where he became solid, he became mature, he became somebody reliable, and so on. It's interesting how that as we spend time with the Lord and in His Word and and, uh, trusting in the power of the Spirit, a wonderful transformation begins to take place in all of our lives. We begin to grow and mature, right? And we go from maybe unstable, somebody who vacillates and and all is not really sure what you want to do and kind of hard to make a commitment, you know, it's hard for you to make a commitment, but eventually you begin to really grow solid in your faith and in your walk. Well, Peter had a younger brother named Andrew, and Andrew lived most of his life in the shadow of his big brother, Peter. Peter was the vocal one. Peter was the extrovert. Andrew was a very quiet man, all right? Andrew was a just kind of a guy who was in the shadow of Peter all the time. I'll tell you the one thing I love about Andrew, though, was this. Every time we see Andrew in the Gospels, guess what? He's always introducing someone to Jesus. You know, there's a lot of Andrews in the body of Christ, men and women. You'll never know their name. You know, no one really will ever know their name in a very big way. Um, You know, they're not public 
people. They don't really have a big following. But they have a quiet ministry. Their heart is just to see people come to Christ. And they're always praying and they're always uh, witnessing. And they're always just quietly bringing people to Christ. And believe me, they are going to be well known in heaven. Andrew, I think, was one of these people. Well, the next two people we're introduced to is James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James and John, of course, were brothers, and they were the sons of a man named Zebedee. They were professional fishermen who worked for their father in the family fishing business. Now, you remember what James and John, what their nicknames were, don't you? Sons of Thunder. Why was that? Because they were hotheads, all right? They had a temper-ish problem, all right? I mean... You know, it was, was, it was, it really came out early in their walk with Christ. Like, remember when Jesus went to a certain village to preach with his disciples? And for some reason, the, the people of the village didn't want them coming into their town. And so they kind of turned them away. Remember what James and John asked the Lord? They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven like Elijah and burn them all up? And Jesus said, no. He said, look, I, I, you don't even know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy life, but to save. Let's just go to another village. All right? Burn everybody up. No. Burn everybody up. Now, of course, James, John's brother, was one of the early martyrs of the Christian church. Acts 12 tells us he was martyred by Herod. John went on to live, though, a rather long life. In fact, uh, in AD 95, he wrote the book of Revelation. So John died at a ripe old age. And so I want you to know the, trans, the transformation that took place in John's life. How that he went from a son of thunder in his early days, and as he walked with the Lord, then later on just filled with the Spirit and serving the Lord, he went from this kind of fiery-tempered guy till his later years in life. What was his favorite saying as he wrote his epistles and things like that? Remember what it was? My little what? Children. Okay? That's a soft, tender guy, right? My little children. In fact, History tells us that when John was very elderly and he was still preaching, sometimes he was so weak he couldn't even walk up to the pulpit to preach. So they would actually carry him on a chair and set him up in front. And sometimes he would just look at the congregation and just say simply, my little children love one another. And then they'd take him off somewhere else, you know. But the transformation that takes place, right, when you spend time with Jesus. You get a temper. Having a hard time with people, you know, I like ministry, just the people I can't handle. If that's your attitude, you know, you got to spend time with Jesus. Jesus was a people person. And as you spend time with Jesus, he's going to give you a heart for people. That's his heart, right? Now, the next two we're introduced to is Philip and Bartholomew. Now, Philip was a native of the city of Bethsaida. That was the town that Andrew and Peter uh, grew up in. And um, he's not the same uh, Philip that we read about in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and Acts chapter 21, verse 8. That was initially Philip the deacon. Remember Acts 6? He was chosen to be a deacon, this other Philip. And then later on, he wanted to be an evangelist, okay? This Philip was an apostle, not the same as that other Philip, deacon and evangelist, all right? Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a skeptic. Remember when Philip came to him and said, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. What did Nathaniel say? Oh, goody. He says, what? Jesus of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not a family-friendly place, you might say. You know, like Las Vegas, they're trying to make themselves look like a family-friendly place. Okay, you can put lipstick on a pig, guys, 
It's still a pig. All right? <laughs> Nazareth was not a nice place. Very rough town. Very immoral place. And so when Nathaniel heard that this Messiah, so-called, came out of Nazareth, he was very skeptical. Of course, as he then was introduced to Jesus and walked with him, he became a great man of faith. As was another man we're introduced to next, Thomas, and then coupled with Matthew, the tax collector. Thomas, I think, continues to carry the dubious title of Doubting Thomas. And initially, Thomas was a bit of a doubter. He had trouble accepting things as Jesus taught them, all right? Even after the Lord rose from the dead and appeared uh, to the disciples in the upper room, Thomas was not there. Later on, when Thomas came back, the Lord had gone, and uh, the disciples said, uh, uh, we've seen the Lord, he was here. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I can you know, put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and my hand in the spear wound in his side. And so next week, Jesus comes into the room again. And here's Thomas is with them. And Jesus said, look, son, come on over here, Thomas. Put your fingers in my nail prints. Put your hand in my spear wound. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He was transformed as well into a great man of faith. Although initially he doubted. I mean, I think at times we all doubt some things. Not we don't doubt Jesus. We just doubt, is God going to work in my life? Has God really love me? Does God want to help me? Is God really with me? We doubt some of these things. But again, spending time with Jesus will assure you how much God really does love you. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. And then, of course, we're introduced to Matthew. As we've already seen earlier in our study in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew was a Jew from the tribe of Levi. That's why he is often called Levi. But uh, he was a tax collector for, for the Roman government. And to be a tax collector for the Roman government meant you were a traitor to Israel. And no doubt an extortioner because these tax guys were notorious crooks. In fact, many of them wanted to be tax collectors because they could extort money out of the people. So no doubt Matthew was that way. So Matthew the tax collector. And then we introduced to James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Now, we don't know really anything about James, son of Alphaeus. Uh, nothing really more is said about him in the scriptures, except in the gospel he's also called James the Less. The Greek word for less is micros, and it could mean younger or shorter. That's probably what it meant, shorter. Shorty, okay? As opposed to James, the brother of John, they were big guys. So you want to talk about Jesus' apostles, you want to say uh, shorty James. Well, you know who you're talking about then. Okay, as opposed to Big James, all right? Lebius also were introduced to whose surname was Thaddeus. Don't let these names throw you. See, back then, they would often have given names that were given at birth, and then they would have nicknames that family and friends gave them. And that seems to be the case here with, uh, with Lebius. We, we read in Acts 6, verse 16, and Acts 1, excuse me, Luke 6, 16, and Acts 1, 13, that he was called Judas, the son of James. Now, not Judas Iscariot, different Judas, but he was called Judas, the son of James. It's likely that Judas was his original name and that Thaddeus and Lebius were, you know, again, nicknames given to him by his family and friends. I mean, there's a lot of you folks here that, you know, you have your given name, but, you know, you have friends and even family members that call you nicknames. Well, same thing back then is the idea. And then we're introduced to two more people. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus. 
Simon the Canaanite is really, folks, Simon the Zealot. Well, why is he called the Canaanite? Well, it's kind of a poor translation from the Greek word kananias, which is a takeoff on the Hebrew word kana, which is a word that means zealous or jealous. The equivalent is zelotes, which means zealot, and that's what he is called in other places, Simon the Zealot. Who were the zealots? They were a ultra-radical political group that was bent on overthrowing the Roman government and freeing Israel to be a free nation once again. At this point, Israel was under the dominion of Rome. They were not a free nation. And so the uh, zealots hated Rome. In fact, many were assassins who, where there was a big crowd, if there was a Roman soldier and a lot of people around, they would slip into the crowd, put a knife in this guy's back and slip away just because they hated Rome and wanted to overthrow uh, the yoke of Rome. Now, it's interesting that Jesus chooses a zealot named Simon and a tax collector, a Jew working for the Roman government, to be two of his disciples. Isn't that interesting? If Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector had met under different circumstances, I have no doubt at all that Simon would have put a knife in Matthew's back. Isn't it interesting how that when we come together in Christ, all of a sudden all these prejudices and all this hatred and animosities and different ideologies, they just all fade away as we draw close to Christ. We become more and more like a family. That's why I love to see the diversity in the body of Christ. I love to come to church and see people of all different uh, economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, coming together, singing to the Lord. It's just beautiful because it says to the world, look, you know, you guys out there, you can be prejudiced, you can hate this person and that person's skin color and whatever else. You know what in here, though? Jesus is all that matters. And you know what? When I was once out there in the world, when I come here in the church as a Christian, it's all changed. I mean, let's be honest. If we weren't Christians, there are some people in this church you probably would never hang out with. But as a Christian, you love each other because of what Jesus has done. And, of course, the last guy we're introduced to is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means man of Kerioth. Kerioth was a small town in Judea, about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, Judas is the only one, Judas Iscariot is the only one who has a geographical designation attached to his name. Why? Why call him Judas from Kerioth? Well, many believe that because Judas was the only one from Judea, the southern part of the state of Israel, uh, that all the others, including the Lord Jesus Christ himself, were from Galilee, which was in the north. And that Judas was actually the only one who came from the area of Judea. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, he said, Judean Jews generally felt superior to the Jews of Galilee. And although Judas himself was from a rural village, he probably did not fit well into the apostolic band, end quote. I think it's probably true for a lot of reasons. But I want you to take a good hard look at the men that Jesus chose, listen to me, to start the most important religious movement in the history of mankind. Think about this, all right? This, by far, was the most important movement, religious movement, in the history of the world, right? It was the only religious movement based on the truth of God, the only one that could bring a person to salvation. So obviously it was the most important. I mean, but look who Jesus chose to start this great work with. He chose one man who was impulsive and unstable, Peter or Simon, 
a couple of hotheads named James and John, a skeptic named Nathaniel, a doubter named Thomas, a political rabble-rouser slash assassin named Simon the Zealot. And folks, these were the good ones. When you compare them with Judas, right? I mean, would you have chosen these men for this important ministry? I mean, if the Lord had come down to me back then and said, all right, Phil, I want you to spearhead the most important religious movement in the history of the world. Get your team together because we're going to get this thing going pretty quick. Okay, Lord, you know what I would have done? I would have gone to the seminaries back then and the Bible colleges of that day and I would have looked for the brightest, the smartest, you know, the most educated, the the most degrees, you know. I would have looked for all these kind of people to, to get on my team. Most of us would have probably done that, right? What did Jesus choose? He chose ordinary people, fishermen, farmers, blue-collar guys, you know. Judas was probably uh, an educated man, but the rest of the apostles at that time, of course, Paul came on later on. Paul was an educated guy, but initially these ones that followed Jesus in the Gospels, they were just ordinary blue-collar guys. And I can imagine what was going through their minds before the Lord ascended back to heaven and said to them, now, I want you to go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. I'm sure they're thinking, what? Lord, have you forgotten who we are? We're just fishermen. We're just ordinary guys. We're, we're going to go to Rome, the imperial city, and preach about you there? Or or Alexandria in Egypt, the, the center of cultural learning there? Or Athens or any one of these, these incredible heady places of, where they have universities and, 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 and very sophisticated folks? We're going to go. How are we going to do that? Listen to me. God calls ordinary people to do his work through, but he never leaves them without the power of the Spirit to do that work. And listen to me again. God never chooses somebody to do his work based on what they are at that moment, but always based on what he knows they can become through his power and grace. And here we are, aren't we? However, I think today churches are no longer really looking at the heart when choosing leaders. They're really not looking at God's anointing upon a person's life. You know, looking around saying, look, wow, I can really see the hand of God on his life or on her life. I think God's calling them into a key ministry. Churches don't really do that anymore today for the most part. They don't look for that the heart or the anointing of God upon a person's life. You know, I've actually heard of churches that are turning to listen to this, secular organizations to give their leadership candidates personality tests to determine if they have the right temperament and giftedness for ministry before they hire them on. It kind of reminds me of a little spoof that imagines Jesus had done something like this before choosing his 12 disciples. It goes like this. To Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, 25922, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. This is given as a result of a staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. 
It is the opinion of our staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of anger. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants, end quote. You know, the author of that little spoof, of course, is trying to communicate to us how exactly opposite to God the world often is when choosing its leaders, right? I mean, the world looks for those who are strong, self-confident, and assertive to be leaders. The world thinks that only those who are highly intelligent and gifted with natural abilities can be leaders. In fact, the world often then looks at the outward appearance even in consideration when choosing its leaders. You know, height, stature, beauty, and so on. The prophet Samuel made this mistake when God sent him to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king over Israel in place of Saul. Saul was chosen by the people. He was the first king of Israel. And the people, when they chose a king, chose somebody who was tall, dark, and what? Handsome. They looked at appearance. Of course, Saul wound up being a disaster as a king. Why? He had all the outward attributes. You know, he was what the psychologists call an SNL, a strong natural leader also. The problem with SNLs, quote unquote, is that they're often driven uh, by pride and ego and see people as tools to accomplish their objectives. They're really not people persons, per se. Saul used people to make himself look great, to exalt his name. He was a terrible leader and wound up being a disaster as a king. So at one point, God says to Samuel, you're going to go to the house of Jesse, and I want you to anoint a new king over Israel. So Samuel goes down there and says to Jesse, okay, here's why I'm here. Will you bring out your sons? One of them has been chosen by God to be the new king of Israel. So the first kid comes out. I don't know how old he was, probably in his early 20s, was Eliab. And Samuel takes one look at this kid and goes, wow, to himself. This has got to be the Lord's anointed. Look at this kid. Good looking, strong kid. This has got to be the Lord's anointed. And at that moment, the Lord spoke to him and said, Samuel, don't look at his appearance, his height, stature, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And who did God finally tell Samuel, this is the one you anoint him as king? A 14 or 15 year old shepherd boy named David. Nobody in the world would ever have gone to a 14 or 15 year old shepherd kid to anoint as the next king of Israel. I mean, 
it's so totally contrary to what the world would have done, right? Why did God choose David? Because he said, David's a man after my own heart. And you see, if a person puts their whole heart and their love and concern and all in intending to real sheep, they're going to put that same love, concern, and, and all in tending my sheep. God was looking at what? The outward? No, he was looking at the heart. God always looks at the heart. Remember what the Bible says, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9? God said, My eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is right with me that I might show myself strong through. It's never your abilities that God looks at. It's always your heart. Let me say this to you. When God finds a person who has a good heart, a heart that loves him and is loyal to him, folks, the rest he'll take care of. The, the rest, he will build that person into what he wants him or her to be. But you have to have the heart. If God doesn't have your heart, he really doesn't have any part of you. Although many give him lip service. And so if a person has a heart for God, regardless of their physical attributes, or, listen, regardless of their prior moral failings as before they got saved, right? It's a lot of people that have really done some pretty horrible things before they became Christians. Some of them, even like Paul the Apostle, as we're going to see in a moment, think that those things that they did in the past were so bad, it excludes me from being used by God. That's not the case. Because God chooses all kinds of people. In fact, often those first who are, again, in the world's eyes, insignificant, worthless, broken, hopeless, even before he will choose the very gifted to serve him. Paul the Apostle mentions this in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, when he said, He said, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. In other words, God delights in taking the weak, the foolish, the broken, the nobodies to do his best work through so that he receives all the glory. And you know what? We as Christians, we know that. And yet, let me say this. Whatever I teach on this subject... There are many Christians who still think, yeah, I know, but who am I to serve God, though? You know? I mean, who am I? To, what, do, what do I have that God can really use? They feel, again, very unworthy and inadequate. They say things like, who am I that I can serve God? I just want to say to everyone that feels that way, that you know what? Anybody who God has ever called into ministry has felt the same way. Because God calls people with the right heart. And if you've got the right heart, you're never going to feel, okay, God, glad you chose me, boy. Now I'm going to show you, okay? Step aside, Lord. Here I go. Watch me work. If your heart is right and God only chooses people with good hearts, you're going to always feel inadequate and unworthy. That's good. You should never go into ministry thinking you are adequate or worthy. I remember when God chose Moses. I mean, he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. What did Moses say? Lord, are you kidding me? Remember me? I stutter. Okay, I can't go to, to Pharaoh. I can't talk good. 
God says, you go, I'll be with you. David, Jeremiah, Timothy, and Mary were only teenagers when God called them into the ministry. Do you think that they felt worthy or qualified? Certainly not. Even the great apostle Paul expressed his unworthiness to be chosen by God for the ministry. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Even Paul felt he was inadequate, unworthy to serve God in ministry. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 9. Talking about how God called him to be an apostle. Paul says, you know, I'm the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did some pretty evil things to Christians before he got saved. He, he thought this was a cult. So he tried to persecute them. He made them blaspheme the Lord at the point of a sword. Paul, he dragged them into court. He, he helped stone some. Paul was a man on a mission. And he did some terrible things to Christians before he got saved. And he thought because of what he had done to Christians, it excluded him from ever serving God. But God still called Paul into the ministry. And Paul says in verse 10, the reason God called him was by what? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. How about 1 Timothy chapter 1? Let's pick it up in verse 12. Where Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't even know what I was doing back then. Paul said, I thought I was serving God, and I was actually working against God by persecuting his people. And verse 14 says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. I am what I am by the grace of God, and by the grace of our Lord, which was exceedingly abundant, Paul says, God put me into ministry. Look, guys, grace means getting what you don't deserve. That's what grace is. Getting what you don't deserve. None of us deserve anything from God. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve to be used by God. Everything God gives to us, everything God uses us for is all by His grace. None of us can say, well, I was worthy or I was adequate. It's always by God's grace that He uses any of us. You know, most of you have heard my testimony, but I can still remember. When I first got saved, you know, my mom had gotten saved first. And then not long after, uh, my family moved to California where my mom started to attend the Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California, were Pastor Chuck Smith pastors. And uh, as my mom began to sit under Pastor Chuck's teaching, verse by verse teaching the word, she got set on fire. And then she would send, at that time it was cassette tapes, back to my wife and I, and we would listen to the teachings, and we eventually got saved. And I remember, oh, a few months later, we went out there for vacation to see my family. And I remember going to Calvary Chapel. I couldn't wait to just sit in, in church and hear the word taught. I remember sitting there, listening to Pastor Chuck teach the word and saying to myself, oh, how wonderful would it be to stand and teach God's word to people? But man, I could never do that. Because I had this crippling, debilitating fear of public speaking like you've never seen before. I remember when I was in high school especially, and I'd have to stand up in front of the class and read a report or do an announcement. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it, my heart started pounding. My hands started sweating. My mouth got dry as cotton. I, I felt like I was going to pass out. I had an anxiety attack. So as I'm sitting there thinking, 
or excuse me, as I'm sitting there watching Pastor Chuck teach the word, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, what a great thing it would be to be able to do that. I, I just knew there was absolutely no way God could ever use me to do that. But I, thought, I figured, well, that's okay. There's plenty of other things, right, I can do for the Lord. Just nothing that would require me to stand in front of people. As I look back now, I can't help but imagine a smile on the face of God. As God was thinking to himself, Phil, you have no idea what I'm about to do in your life. You're about to learn an important lesson. When you're weak, you're strong. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And as God began to call me, well, I'm glad he didn't really tell me right away. He kind of let me ease into it a little bit. Because if I had gotten saved and that day God said, now here's my plan for your life, okay? You're going to be a pastor. You're going to stand in front of people all the time and speak. I would have been like one early church father that I read about as a young man when the people came from the, from the town he was living in, came to him and said, we believe God is calling you to be our pastor. Just a young Christian guy. And everyone says, we, we believe God is calling you to be our pastor. When he heard that, he literally, now I'm not, he literally ran out into the night screaming at the fear of that kind of responsibility. Well, they ran after him and, and they, yeah, they, they reasoned with him and, and convinced him that God was calling him. God would probably caught me somewhere out there, you know, and convinced me. But I'm glad he didn't just tell me all of that right up front. And often God doesn't tell us his plans for our lives in full up front. Now, sometimes we want that, right? Sometimes we, we're like, oh, Lord, I'll serve you. But can you just, you know, submit to me in full what you plan to do? So I can decide if I really want to get on board. God says, no, I don't work like that. You just follow me one day at a time. And I'll unfold my will for your life in time. But as I've reflected on the call of God upon my life over the years, I have never doubted for a minute that, as Paul the Apostle said with regard to his own call into ministry, I am what I am by the grace of God. The fact that I could stand up here at all and teach God's word or that this church has been in existence for 31 years, listen to me, is a total testimony to His grace, His power, and His faithfulness. And any Christian, man or woman, who thinks that success in ministry is a testimony to their ability, hard work, and ingenuity is fooling themselves. In fact, they're kind of like the story I heard of the little woodpecker who landed on the mighty oak tree and began to peck away. And at that very moment, a lightning bolt came from the sky, struck the oak tree, split it in two, and knocked it to the ground. And as the little woodpecker, fluttering his wings, hovered over that fallen giant, he said to himself with a lot of pride, Look what I did. (laughs) Or as Alex Haley, the author of Roots, had a sign on his office wall that read, If you see a turtle... On a uh, fence post, you know one thing, it had to have some help. (laughs) Folks, I'm a turtle on a fence post. So when you look at me, don't get all impressed. I had a lot of help, okay? A lot of help. I am what I am by the grace of God. Didn't God say this way back in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6? When God said to his people back then, who were facing a very monumental task in front of them, rebuilding the nation after the Babylonian invasion and uh, how they destroyed the city, and now they're coming back to rebuild it. 
what a work they had ahead of them. How difficult. And they got tired and they began to want to give up. And the Lord spoke to them and said, look, it is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You are not going to do the work I've called you to do through your own power or strength. You have to rely on the power of my Holy Spirit. And folks, that goes for everything in life that God has called you to do, whether it's marriage, raising kids, in ministry, whatever. Everything God has called you to do, if you try to do it in your own strength, you're going to fail. You need to rely totally on the power of God. Let me just close by saying this. Again, you know, maybe, you know, you've been thinking how great it would be to serve God. You see other people serving the Lord and you think, wow, I mean, that, how wonderful to serve God. But I, I just know I could never do it. You know, I mean, who am I? I'm just an ordinary person, you know, no one's special. Remember this. It's not the instrument that's important. It's the one who uses the instrument that deserves the credit and the praise. You know, imagine a surgeon who uses a scalpel to perform a delicate, life-saving operation. And when everything goes well and the patient is, you know, is healed, the people don't rush in and pick up the scalpel and lift it up and go, Oh, what an instrument. Oh, the scalpel, the surgery it performed. No, they look at the one who used the instrument and say, Wow, what a great surgeon. And the same is true with the instruments that God uses. He does the work. He deserves all the credit, all the praise. Our job, keep your hearts right and stay available. That's all he wants. Keep your hearts right, stay available, and he will use you. And when he does, then you can praise him by saying, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, that you chose us to be your sons and daughters. And if that wasn't enough, Lord, well, now you've called us to be your servants. And Lord, we want to sit at your feet to study your words, to grow. But Lord, we want to rise at one point and begin to serve as well. And Father, I know a lot of people, the devil has told, look, your past has prohibited God from using you. Your life was just too bad. Or, you know, who are you to think you could serve God? Come on, get real, the devil tells us. And yet, Lord, you're saying to us, if you come to me, if you'll love me with all your heart and you rely on me and my grace, I will use you. Not because you're worthy or adequate, but because I'm gracious and I will supply the power you need. And so, Lord, in these last days, we need grace, Lord. Father, the work is so great. The laborers are so few and the time is so short. Lord, please work in the hearts of your people that they would want to go and serve in these last days. Father, we need servants. We need laborers sent forth into the harvest. We ask the Lord of the harvest to send out those workers. And Father, we pray that every person in our church would be a servant. Nobody would be a spectator. No one would be comfortable just being blessed by others. But Lord, everybody in this church, we pray you would stir their hearts to want to come and do the work. And so, Lord, we thank you 
because there is no limit to what you can accomplish through a man or woman who is fully devoted and surrendered to you. By your grace, we will be those men and women. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.